As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continued to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year, and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. Welcome to the SUPFM podcast with me, Simon Hutchinson. Every week, I chat with interesting people from the SUP world or to people who can help us, the paddlers of the SUP tribe, to improve and to maximise our own experiences and our love of both the sport and the water. Every episode is designed to inspire or to help you get a deeper immersion into the sport through my conversations with leading athletes, scientists, explorers, TED speakers and New York Times best-selling authors. And not forgetting some of the many insanely inspiring distance paddlers we've routinely had on the show. This week I speak to the nomadic paddler David Hayes, where he talks about his record-breaking journey and his even more remarkable personal journey and the role that SUP has played in both of these areas of his life. And just something to point out to our US and Canadian listeners, David does mention a guy called David Dickinson in this episode, and just to be clear, he's not talking about Canadian football head coach with the Calgary Stampeders. He's talking about a permatanned UK daytime TV personality, completely different person. Google him. Important to get that out there. Hi, David. Welcome to SUP FM. Thank you for having me. It's, uh, yeah, I'm really glad to be talking with you finally. It's great. It's great to have you on. So, um, just to sort of give a bit of an introduction about you, we, we've talked on the show previously a lot about what's led people to stand up paddleboarding and what benefit people have had from the sport. But you have really used the sport as a means to transform and, and turn around your own life and also to use it as a means to raise money and benefit others. And in the process, you've achieved, I think, is it seven world records? Yes, it is seven. Yes. Yeah, and and I guess we wouldn't even be speaking, and you wouldn't be doing these records at all if you hadn't, you know, quite a set of life experiences, including some really serious low points. Would that be fair? Yeah, no, I mean, definitely, that's definitely fair. And you know, for me, paddleboarding has completely transformed my life. The power behind it is, you know, it's unbelievable. Well, you've got a, a really remarkable story. But before we get into that, just tell me a bit about one of your mo- more recent world records, because you broke the record for supping the Thames. So that's the non-tidal Thames, which is 208 kilometres or 129 miles of continuous paddling from Lechlade to Teddington Lock, which is longer, because I checked, than the 11 cities race. 
And unlike the 11 cities race, it's got 45 locks to navigate and portage. So what sort of record were you looking at breaking on that? What was the previous record you were aiming at? So the previous one, I broke the previous record by 10 hours. So it is the quickest time, as you said, from Letchley to Teddington Lock. And as she's mentioned there, it's the locks. The locks are the killer on that one. So mm. as a stand-up paddleboarder, we're not allowed to go through the locks. We have to come out, get out the water and go around the locks, which sounds fine. But, you know, when you've been paddling for 40-odd hours and carrying a 14-foot solid board, it's absolute killer. And that's the thing that destroyed me the most. Um, but the tele- when I look back at it now, it's like I look at it back at fond memories. But at the time, it's probably one of the most horrendous things I've ever done in my life. I didn't sleep for about 38 hours. I just continually, continuously paddled. Um, and I remember I got to a point on there where I started getting all these black spots in my eyes. I was getting quite delirious. Mm. And I was around Eton and I just had a team off the water and I sort of text them, send them a message. And I said, I've got, I've got to pull over. I've got to get a couple of hours sleep beside the Thames. Otherwise, you know, this could be game over. It's starting to go into dangerous territory now. So I had those couple of hours sleep. Sun came off came up, went and paddled it, and yeah, and I did it in 44 hours. Well, that's quite incredible. And uh, last season we talked to the winner of the non-stop 11 cities. You know, 24-hour paddling is is serious stuff, but almost double that, that is that is quite amazing. So how did you manage to keep yourself going for two full days of paddling? It's, it's an interesting one. With all the paddling I do, it's, you know, I yes, I, I like to think I'm physically fit, but what it comes down to is, is the mind. And as we briefly mentioned at the start of this interview, you know, I've been to some dark places. So it's just trying to think back to where I've come from, that journey I'm going and what I'm trying to do. I remember there was one point uh, I'd been awake for over 24 hours and, and it was about two in the morning. I was cold. I was hungry. Um, you know, the world, you know, I have all these demons niggling at, my, niggling at me, telling me to quit and give up. And as I pulled my board out of the water, I nearly snapped the fin. And I was thinking, like, if I snap this fin right now, nobody's going to know that I've snapped it. I can go out into the world, go, I gave it my best shot. And, you know, and, you know, and then that's fine. But in that moment, I caught that thinking. I was like, that's how I used to think. That sort of thinking led me down the path that, you know, that we're going to go into. Um, and I was thinking, I don't think like that. I now look at the positive solutions in life. I, I evaluate, I take a step back, live in that moment and see where I can go. And I did that. And that's what keeps me going. Anytime I do some of these endurance events, I mean, more constantly having these little demons niggle at me, telling me to quit. But you just got to capture those little demons. You've got to realize they're there and just put them to bed. You know, mm. it's it's. It's easier said than done, but you know, I wanted to quit every world record I've done. I've always wanted to quit, and I think any endurance athlete, any racer, anyone, they're going to say the same. It's just how you deal with that. So it's just for me, it was just being mindful that it's there, and just thinking of you know these positive solutions. Yeah, absolutely, and and I totally um, echo what you said there. So I've done you know marathons and and sort of distance cycle rides, not not so much the distance on on the sup, but you always have that little voice inside you. And um, I've heard people talking about you know U.S. Navy SEAL training and what goes through their minds when they're going through all of their various levels of of hell. And it's 
what what they do or the successful ones tend to think um, about things as a little game. I'll just push myself this little bit further and then I'll give myself an opportunity to give up. And, you know, just just playing that little game with yourself, that that that's sort of what's got me through a lot of my endurance events. But it, it's knowing that the mind is able to be moulded. And I think obviously that's one of the key lessons that you've got out of your life experiences in the past. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting what you said about the Navy SEAL thing. So somebody that I look up to and admire is a guy called David Goggins. Yeah. Yes. Who is ex-Navy SEAL. So he has his 40, 60 percent thing. So when you've hit that low, it, that's only 40 percent of you. So when you really want to give up, that's just 40 percent. He says you've got another 60 percent in your tank. And I always anytime I get to that low, I revert back to what I've read about David Goggins. and I read in this book and it is, you know, he's still got another 60 percent. Like my body's fine. It's just my mind's telling me mm. to quit. And it's just controlling that mind and just, you know, making sure that you control it and it doesn't control you. And that's how I get through these things. Absolutely. I think we probably read the same books. So just in terms of your preparation for that, because, um, you know, there is a certain amount of fitness that you can get when you're out on the water, but that's generally sort of multi-day type events. But, you know, that was a pretty intense uh, piece of fizz there. How did you prepare for for covering that distance i mean i do a lot of strength conditioning in the gym um there's days that i can't go paddling in the water and i hit the rowing machine in the gym um and i try and do as much long paddles as i can out in the water but i always try and push myself through different endurance events so sometimes i'll go for a 70k run just so i can get those demons come in for me so I can fight them and I try and push myself as much as I can um, and come up with things where my body is going to be pushed to the limits, knowing how far my body can go and then just, yeah, tackle that when I come. I think physically wise, you know, I'm fine. I've got control of that. It's just mentally wise. That's the thing you've got to learn to control. And it's so hard to to learn how to deal with those things. So for just for fun, I go and do these really stupid long endurance events on my own, solo, with no aid, just so I can come up against that wall and knock it down, go through it, and knowing that when I'm on the water, I can continue and do what I've set out to do. So just because I'm interested in this, how do you manage your hands? Because you, you see people coming out <laughs> the 11 cities with bloody stumps. Well, how did you manage that? Well, <laughs> so, I mean, the long before Loch Ness, uh, sorry, before uh, the River Thames, the longest I uh, paddled, I think, was 40 kilometres. So when I did River Thames, I didn't really prepare. I mean, I got my gloves, I got a bit of wax on my hands. The thing that got me, I lost four fingernails at the end of it. So like marathon, I mean, I've done a lot of marathons, I've lost my toenails, and I've never lost fingernails. I didn't know this was a thing. Um, so now, I now know. I don't think you can really, I think your fingernails are going to be, are going to come off if you do distances like that. But it's just keeping them as soft as possible. You know, a bit of talcum powder. I've got some special wax. I've got gloves that I can wear. Um, but I mean, those sort of distances, you just sort of got to prepare yourself that you know, it, you know, you are going to get blisters. You are going to be damages. Like, so just you know, blisters and everything. Just make sure that you keep your hands as dry as you possibly can, and all those sort of things. Really. And and what about the logistics? So resupply. You carry stuff with you. Do you have a team? Yeah, so when I did the Thames, I had uh, four stops along the Thames where I was quickly refueled. I tried to carry as much as I possibly can, so I got a camel back on my back, which has got three litres of water. I have um, electrolytes in there, a 
carry water on my um in my dry bag at the front as well when i did my first four world records my nutrition i focused mainly on protein as my nutrition i then worked with a guy called the sup coach um and he taught me about nutrition proper nutrition and it's all about carbs so i now have carbs i have gels and fruit but when i did the terms there was four different stops where i could refuel put everything on and then go on again um but it's just i mean for that one it wasn't fact you just got to try and keep yourself dry as well you know to stop any chafing i mean my thing my toes as well you know they sort of i lost my little toenail as well on that one um it's just looking after your body as well that's sort of the main thing as well as the food and the hydration and everything like that and the weather was all right no headwinds anything do, like that do you know what like, no the, like the, the only last one all the records i've done the weather's been amazing like, i've been blessed but when i went to loch ness that's a completely different story um but yeah the weather was lovely it was hot i did get an amazing tan so again obviously prepare yourself for that so sun cream make sure you know you've got a cap on or a hat um anything to protect your body really and uh the portages that stick most heavily in your mind obviously you mentioned the sort of two in the clock two o'clock in the morning one uh any long ones there yeah, there's a few that stick with me. Um, there's one. So there was that one. There was that, that two in the morning one. There was another one where it must have been about 100 metres from the third floor. I had to get out to get back in. And obviously it was an early morning one again. Obviously everything's locked up. And I was going along trying to find the point where I can climb over a fence. I climbed over a fence and I put my board down on the other side of the fence. And then my foot got stuck in the fence. So I'm sort of legs in the air, my other legs down the floor. Everything's sort of all my bags around me. I just looked like, you know, a pillow, like <laughs> trying to get over this fence. And then there was another one where I pulled again, got the board out of the water. And I, so my mum bought me a GoPro, not last Christmas, the Christmas before. Um, and I lost it training. I live in Paul Harbour. I lost it out in Paul Harbour. I didn't have the heart to tell my mum because she would just say, why do I buy you nice things? You always lose them. So I went behind her back, bought a new GoPro on the River Thames. I knocked it off, lost it in the uh, Thames. And again, this is, it was freezing cold. I don't know if the Thames is that deep. I sort of put my paddle in, see how deep is this. And I was like, no, let's just accept that's gone now. I've lost it to the Thames. Um, and I was gutted because I really like that GoPro as well. Mm, well, that's a familiar story. I've I've got a whole list of stuff that's ended up at the bottom <laughs> yeah. of the, the sea. It's uh, <laughs> a, a lesson which I, I'm uh, I'm not learning, clearly. but uh, <laughs> I don't think any of us is. Like it'd be amazing to go around Paul Harbour and see what's at the bottom there. I bet there's a load of GoPros down there. Well, there's an idea. So, so <laughs> when you got to uh, Teddington Lock finally, I mean, how did you feel, or did you just not feel anything after sort of two days of paddling? Uh, I it was it was absolutely amazing. So, I mean, I used to live near Teddington Lock, so it was sort of going past um, old ground there, which was lovely. Um, and I got there, and I did. I was absolutely shattered and then we went for dinner afterwards and like the weird thing is when I've done these endurance events my body just can't take water anymore it can't take food and I was a very broken man a very relieved man but very broken mm. and there was a, quite a uh, a little welcoming party there for me as well which is lovely to see but what's also nice I had a couple of paddle paddlers that came and joined me um and a couple of people sort of because I had a live tracker going so there's a few people following my my journey and caught me at different locks for a little selfie which was lovely and great for the morale as well yeah absolutely uh, brendan prince when i've spoken to him has spoken about the the morale effect of, of having people out there on the water with you 
Um, so, so the reason why you were doing it, and you know all your other world records, is that you're raising money for particular charities in particular. Uh, those charities have got a, a very personal connection for you. So, if you're happy explaining, could you just tell us a bit about sort of how you found yourself raising money for those charities and the life events that led up to your fundraising? Yeah. So the the main charity I raise money for is the Alliance of Sport who actually use the power of sport in the criminal justice system to help tackle reform and rehabilitation. And I can quite proudly say that they've made, him, made me an ambassador now, which is, you know, which is fantastic. But, you know, I think it's very important for me to highlight the importance of reform and rehabilitation because I'm actually a former prisoner myself. So I've gone from former prisoner to, well, you know, to a world record holder, which is amazing. But actually living in the experience, I realised how broken our system is. Um, so I work as a consultant for the criminal justice system now. So everything I do is to highlight the importance. I've now been given a platform. So I want to not just highlight the importance of reform and rehabilitation, but I want to show others that our mistakes don't define who we are. You know, we're the only ones in control of our destiny. So as long as we can realize that then we can do whatever we want with our life you know your past isn't your past it doesn't define who you are um and i want to prove to the public as well that you know we shouldn't be so i want to change perspectives on people like myself so a lot of people have this image of uh, you know people that have been to prison and i would say 97 percent of the people in prison didn't wake up to commit a crime there was something that led to them commit a crime you know, the reason I committed a crime is you know, I lost my job. I turned to heavy drug use. I ended up turned to gambling, drinking, and there's depression involved. And that's what led me to my crime. So people got to realize there are reasons. I don't condone what I've done, you know, but I'm now sort of on the path to try and support and help others turn their life around like I've done as well. Absolutely. And I, I want to talk about that in more detail and, and particularly the rehabilitation and you know, the penal system and how it works and how things are sort of slanted as we go. But just to go back into your story a little bit, you, you know, you, you've got personal experience of of, of being in prison and, and you had a couple of um, spells of that. How did you reach that point? And looking at it now from knowing what you know now and having done so much work with prisoners, can you kind of recognise some of the, the, the patterns that sort of led you to the offending behavior yeah no i can like i mean so growing up i haven't been given the word worst cards in life i haven't been given the best cards in life um and growing up i used to love adventure it was it was you know it was my number one thing i love being outdoors i thrive being outdoors in fact and i did go to boarding school and one thing that's amazing about boarding school it gives you so many great opportunities but one of the things it doesn't do it doesn't teach you how to deal with failure so my whole life it's sort of been given these opportunities and I did well with these opportunities and eventually I've gone into the big world myself. I moved to London, I became a forex trader um, and I lost that sense of adventure. I lost that me. I didn't know who I was anymore and eventually I lost my job. Um, I basically became too big for my boots in the company I was working for. I fell out with my manager and that was the first major failure I've ever had to deal with in my life. And it's only now that I've realised that failure is actually a tool for growth just because you fail doesn't actually make you a failure. You know, you can learn so much from it, but I didn't know that at the time. 
So I failed, you know, I was eventually I was earning some good money in London. My family are proud of me. You know, my girlfriend's proud of me. Everybody's proud and loving life. And it's all just been whipped away from me. I didn't know what to do. I was like, oh, I've never dealt with failure before. So I sort of turned to gambling to try and, you know, keep up the facade that I was still earning money. That then led to drug use. That led to drinking. The gambling just got completely out of control. And then I ended up turning to crime, um, which then led me to my first prison sentence. So, so how was that? You know, because you'd clearly fallen quite some distance. Yeah, I so eventually I was arrested, um, and I for the, for the first year I had the court date looming over my head. I didn't tell anybody that this is loom, you know, this court date was coming. I eventually got my life back on track. I got a really good job again, but I still had this court date coming. And when that day came, I guess I had a nervous breakdown. I just disappeared for five weeks. In those five weeks, I um, tried to take my life, tried to end it all. I just didn't know how to deal with anything. Um, and eventually, yeah, I was caught. I was found. And, you know, even though I was sent to prison, it was a big relief. I'm so glad I didn't take my life. So glad I got my family back and everything's back. But prison was just such a horrible, scary experience. But the first time I didn't realise how many great opportunities opportunities there are in prison to really help you turn your life around yeah so it was the second stretch though that where things sort of certainly started to change for from you and when you sort of recognize that can you can you recognize that moment where suddenly you know the lights came back on and, and you realized that actually there were some some opportunities to, to change yes I, I don't remember the exact moment so you know, the second time I was just thinking, how how have I ended up here again? What's gone wrong? And, you know, I sort of decided to go on this journey of self-discovery to truly understand who I am, something I've never done before. You know, there's, there's parts of me that I don't know. Like, so, I mean, I don't know my father. I don't know any of that family. I've just got my mother. And there's little bits in me that I just feel disconnected. So I decided to go on this journey of self-discovery to really reconnect myself. And I remember in the prison, they did a... um yoga day to help guys get in touch themselves like you know be mindful and think about the present and all this and I went in there and in that moment I realized that it was really weird I was even though I'm in prison I wasn't in prison you know my body was but my mind was somewhere else I thought this is amazing and the lady that was running it was called Dr Sarah Lewis who owns a company called Penal Reform Solutions and I just said to her like I feel amazing like suddenly there's a bit of hope in me, something something ignited. And I said to her, like, I'd love to help you out on anything you do in prison. She said, yeah, that's fine. So we started working together. And then she said, when you're released, contact me. And, I, you know, there's a job for you. So I came up, we stayed in touch. I came out of prison. And I now work for her full time, trying to improve the system for other people, which is great. But meeting her was the biggest transform transformation, not just for my prison sentence, but for my life as well. Um, I've heard you talking in some of your other interviews about fixed and growth mindset. And, you know, that is a theme that uh, that comes up fairly regularly on the podcast in terms of, you know, not being constrained by the appearance of where you are. Can you Can you just explain the difference between the fixed and growth mindset and just explain where you were when you went into prison as opposed to how it seems when you came out? Well, as I said earlier, I think like when I said when I failed that first time, you know, I just assumed failure is failure. But, you know, that growth mindset now teaches you that failure is an opportunity 
to grow and change. And then when I was in prison, even though, yes, I had failed and, you know, it is my biggest failure in life, I'm slowly starting to see it as becoming my biggest success in life to turn me into the man that I am now um, and the man that I always should have been. Um, and I think growth is such an important thing. Like so many people are scared of trying new things. So something else that I try and champion is the power of adventure. I try and encourage more people to reconnect with themselves by just taking that little step out of the comfort zone. So every time I take to my paddleboard, every time that I go and do one of these adventures, one of these world records, I learn so much about myself. I really push myself to that edge. And that's what growth is all about. You know, these, these adventures, they give me purpose, they give me vision, and they help me grow as an individual to make me so much stronger, so much more powerful as an individual, and just make me so much more competent to live a much more meaningful life. And it's amazing what the power of growth, the power of adventure and the power of paddleboarding can actually do. Absolutely. And um, I think there's a phrase which says there's no such thing as failure, only feedback. And, and you really do see it, you know, particularly for people who, who are doing paddleboarding for the first time. So they see someone who, who might have been paddleboarding for years, sort of, you know, taking the chop and, you know, getting over it and so on. And then they, they um, get on their board and it's like Bambi on ice and they're straight in and they can't get and they get really frustrated and then they give up. But, you know, what they don't see is all the hard work that, that goes on in the background. And, you know, th- there's been two conversations that I've had with, with guests that particularly struck a, a chord in me. One was um, Michael Booth, you know, the Australian um, champion who, who t- who's told me that he loves being a beginner at something because he likes that opportunity of failing and trying and working it out. And then the other guy is Chris Burtish, who crossed the Atlantic. He had a similar attitude, you know, because all of the stuff he does is informed by practice and just gradually ramping up um, the difficulty level. So, you know, you're absolutely right. It, it's it's about not failing and then just taking on a label for something and thinking that 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 is now fixed and you can't can't do everything. And I think there's a lot around social media and so on that is culpable for you know, presenting that image, everyone's got their lovely lifestyle and you and you don't necessarily see what's behind it. That's exactly it. Like, so when I did the River Thames, you know, I, as I said, I broke the record by 10 hours and I, I put my pictures up on the Instagram. People look at them, God, oh, wow, you know, that's great. He's done it. But the amount of pain, the amount of suffering that I had to go through to get that, that was no easy feat by any means. So when I try and put posts up, I try and make it realistic to make people realize that I didn't just go and paddle for 44 hours. That was the most horrendous thing I've ever done in my life. Like, But I learned so much, the opportunity there. Now when I look back at it, I start all those bad things are starting to fade away from my mind. It's just the good memories, that the sunsets, the sunrises. But it was horrendous. Like, you know, at the time, I did not enjoy that single bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like that sort of temptation or that little voice that tells you to to give up, I think the other aspect of endurance um, athletes is um, a very bad memory and sort of forgetting all the, the specifics of pain. And then sort of before too long, you're up for the next challenge. I don't know whether you recognise that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So so just coming back to prison and, and so on and just looking at, looking at it now as you do from outside the system and and working as a consultant it is difficult because prison is i think it's got three main functions to protect the public 
um, to punish and deter criminal behaviour, but it's also there to make sure that people don't reoffend. And that rehabilitation is absolutely so critical to make sure that criminal behaviour doesn't continue. So, so looking at at it from your perspective. I think we'd all agree that protecting the public is the priority. But in terms of the, the sort of punishing and deterrence and the rehabilitation, where do you think things are in terms of, of balancing those missions? So for me, I think going to prison, as you said, you've got to protect the public. You've done a crime. You should have to do the time. For me, having your time taken away, you know, the time of your family, that's taken away from you. That's, that's where the punishment is. And that's where the punishment should stop. It shouldn't be about locking people up for 24 hours a day. I mean, so for instance, you know, I was talking to a guy the other day. He's been in prison 23 times and nobody ever talks to him as an individual. Nobody talks to him as a human being. He's locked in his cell for 23 hours a day. He's got mental health issues and nobody seems to deal with these. He sits in his cell. He does all sorts, a lot of self-harm and everything, but they're not trying to help this man. So one day this man is going to come back out into the public. He's going to be somebody's next-door neighbour, but nobody seems to be supporting this man. Like, I think the criminal justice system is underfunded, like most things are in, the, in Britain. But we need to start creating these rehab cultures, which we're not doing. We're just about locking them up, throwing away the key. That's our attitude in this country. We're slowly getting away from that. Slowly, we're getting all these ban the box organizations. So, like some big companies, I think it's 450 companies are taking away that have you got a criminal record box so you can don't have to disclose it until you've got the job. It's that sort of attitude, it's that growth, that growth mindset that we need to start adapting. I mean, a good example I always say is, and there's probably a lot of the older generation who would hear me, listen to me, know I've been to prison and be disgusted by me. But I can guarantee that older generation will probably sit down and watch a, a program with Stephen Fry or, you know, David Dickinson's Real Deal, not knowing that these two people have served a prison sentence. So people can change. With the right support, we can make a difference. And I think as a whole country, we need to come together, support each other, and so we can create these safer communities, these harmonious environments. And as I said, a good, I would just say only 3% of the people in prison are nasty people the rest of those have just not had the right support or there is a factor that made them commit the crime and we need to get down to the you know why that happened and support them to go down the right track now absolutely and it, and it's all about making the wrong decisions isn't it and there, there's another line which is um, people make the best decisions based on the on what's available to them in the moment and you know if someone doesn't have opportunities or um, of mental health difficulties or whatever, they're going to make some pretty dodgy decisions. Yeah, yeah, definitely they will do. And again, you know, it's, it's worth, yeah, all those factors, it's drugs, alcohol, anything really, the, the upbringing. And so we, we spoke to, we speak to loads of people and, you know, people just their whole life have never been treated well. And the moment I speak to somebody and I'm polite, they see me, when you go into a prison to talk to individuals, now I'm a free man. If they don't know my story, they see me as the enemy. They see me as the other side. But the moment you speak to them as a human being, they're like, why are you being nice to me? Why are you treating me like this? It's like, well, you're a human being at the end of the day. I'm not bothered why you're here. It's about seeing you as an individual and seeing what we can do to get you to the, you know, get you to the other end. Yeah, and quite apart from the human aspect of it and understanding that people can change, there's a real sort of 
pragmatic kind of cost element to it because if you think about the, the policing cost for reoffending, if you think about the court costs, I mean it costs an absolute fortune to keep people in prison, yeah. and that versus them making um, a contribution to society, you know that there's a huge amount of of evidence just in terms of finances that that makes it sort of good economics to get behind this. That's it. And I think it's what's great as well. We can get more companies involved. So when I was at Guy's Marsh, my last prison, I wrote to a load of my local companies to try and get them in. So I wrote to like Lush, the Dorset Tea Company, I managed to get B&Q, Sainsbury's involved, to come and meet individuals who are sort of coming to the end of the sentence. So we can either try and get them into work when they come out as well. So it's trying to find these guys' work opportunities. That's right. That's um, that's That can be challenging, kind of. So knowing what you know now, what what advice and help would you have given to yourself that first time when you came out of prison to sort of avoid that second spell? I think there's two two things. First off, and I think this can go in any day life as well, just own it. Own what you've done. Like one of the things I tried to hide away from that first prison sentence, like I've been to prison, it's a big part of my life, and I just had to own it, like instead of shying away and, and hiding away from it. But the other thing, which I only learned on the second sentence, and it can be the scariest thing you can ever do in your life, but it can also be one of the bravest things as well and make the world a difference. And I think in men especially, we find this hard, but ask for help. If you need help, ask for help. There are so many people willing to help you. If you don't feel like you've got anyone, if you don't feel like you've got any family or friends, there are organisations that are there like, to help you in any way possible. And the more that I've been open to accepting help and asking for help, I've realised how many people that want to help, you know, all, all these companies, you know, my family, my friends. And I think I realised, I didn't really realise that, but after I, after the first sentence, you know, my family just said, she just asked us for help. We'd have helped you. They might not have financially helped me, but we would have sat down as a family, made that decision how to get me out of my troubles. And, you know, we, we could have saved a lot of, a lot of pain and anger. Okay, so we mentioned the main charity that you you work for. Um, just tell us a bit more about that that work that they do and some of the other charities that that you've supported. So Alliance of of Sports is the main one, isn't it? Yeah, so we've got Alliance of Sports. So they sort of go into prisons um, and they use the power of sport to try and help tackle reform rehabilitation. So I suppose it's a different alternative or an alternative education route um, to help get people to reconnect themselves. Um, and learn different life skills. But I've also started working with the RAF Benevolent Fund, so we've got bigger projects in September. So, as I said, my father passed away before I was born, um, and the RAF Benevolent Fund took care of me um, growing up, so they paid for my education, which is fantastic, and I want to give something back to them. Um, I'm also raising money for the uh, adventure therapy. So, Again, adventure has completely transformed my life. Paddleboarding is a form of therapy for me. It helps me keep it straight and narrow. It gives me that purpose and drive in life. Um, I've also raised money for the Jubilee Sailing Trust. Um, so they have a big sailing boat down in Southampton and they get people with disabilities, maybe pe- children that aren't dealing with mainstream education. They get them out on boats. Um, and then today I've got a new project coming up and I've just started working. We're going to start raising money, sorry, for the Surfers Against Sewage. Mm-hmm. Um, I love what they're doing. Um, it's this new green paddle idea I've got. 
Um, we're going to use it as an opportunity to raise money and awareness for surfers against sewage. Excellent. And uh, so I come from a similar area that you do down here on the Dorset coast, and there's plenty of sewage outlets down the, the rivers here. So entirely, entirely support that. So let's get back to the to the sapping and you know seven world records is 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 pretty remarkable and we've talked a bit about the thames but you've got six other records out there and i know you've got a lot of activities planned for the future including the the green Mom, which we'll talk about in a sec but just tell us a bit about loch ness because um that's been the most recent experience and you mentioned that the uh, weather potentially wasn't that great when when you did that so i know you put in some sort of particular preparation from that you had some specialist kit and so on just talk us through that uh, experience yeah so I, I teamed up with a company called water rascal who built me a custom uh 14 foot inflatable racer um and it's got i've got a racer it's rigid and the difference between the two of them was remarkable so the, obviously the rigid being a lot more sturdy so it was just getting used to that inflatable but when I was on the on the on Loch Ness I mean the first thing I didn't really what my girlfriend said it to me is like it's the middle of March or beginning of March you're paddling Loch Ness basically in winter and there's snow in the mountains it didn't really clock my own clock when I was paddling it until I fell in for the first time I fell in mm. quite a few times in that one mm. um but it's quite narrow Loch Ness and it eventually opens up and these waves are literally probably rolling about four foot around me. I'm on this, I've got a side wind coming then the waves are knocking me off. It was absolutely horrendous. Like, and it was cold, but the scenery was unbelievable. Like mm. I just, ah, it was absolutely amazing. Like the snow on the mountains, the, the, the greenery, there's a castle down there. Absolutely loved it. But you know, I managed to do it. I managed to break the record. Uh, it was a Guinness record. I managed to break it by an hour and 15, I think it was. This is the Supper Fem podcast with our guest, the nomadic paddler, David Hayes. And we'll be right back. As always, a huge thank you to Starboard, who are once again this season's main sponsors. Starboard has a history of innovation across water sports, starting in 1994 by revolutionising the design of windsurf boards. And they've brought that bang up to date recently, bringing foil windsurfing onto the Olympic stage with their IQ foil package. Starboard got behind stand-up paddleboarding in a huge way in the early days and continue to lead the industry to reduce their environmental impact. Their focus on innovation brought them seven world champions at the ICF Worlds last year and all of them were using their Lima paddle range. They continue to improve and innovate their boards and their paddles for all abilities across all flavours of the sport, including adventure. And you can find out more about Starboard through their website, which is linked to in the show notes. And now for the rest of my conversation with David Hayes. So, so what are the rules for, say, that particular challenge? Because the Great Glen and, you know, race and particularly mm. that stretch across Loch Ness has got a bit of a reputation as a sort of downwind location. So in order to qualify for your, your record, were there any sort of restrictions in terms of wind strength or anything like that? No, so I mean, it is everyone is telling me about the downwind. Uh, mine was well, it was a uh, was it a westerly wind hit me on the side, or easterly wind? Yeah, but no, it is. So what when you're setting these world records, any record, so you've got to have two witness statements. So the moment you enter the water and the moment you come out, two different witness statements. 
if the paddle is over an hour long, then every hour I have to film for two minutes, which is just a matter of turning the GoPro on. I tend to have it on my chest, turn that on for two minutes, turn it off. Um, then I've got a, I have to have two trackers. So I always have a GPS tracker. Then I'll use like paddle locker or a paddle logger or GeoSup as well mm-hmm. to have those. Um, and then if for any reason I had to come off the water, so with the Thames, so when I had to walk around the locks, I had to have a witness statement of every time I got around. Um, the ones, obviously, when I was doing early in the morning, I couldn't get the witness witness statement, so I recorded the moment I stepped off. It was time-stamped. The moment I stepped on, gave that in, had that witnessed, it was fine. So there is a lot of um, a lot of data you need to provide to make sure that it does get recognised, um, which is great. You know, it's, it's what it's all about. Well, and, and doing that, uh, not having slept for a couple of nights, I bet that was... Uh... A bit difficult there. So um, you had a board designed for the attempt you mentioned, and you've got a particular paddle set up. Is that sort of slits in the paddle? Yeah. So yeah. So so again, as you were saying, with so with the when you're applying these records, the wind direction doesn't it doesn't matter. It's just if it's in your favour, it's in your favour. The equipment is your standard equipment. So a paddle and a board doesn't matter what paddle, doesn't matter what type of board. So I started working with a company called Oscar Propulsion. Um, and they slit the blades of the paddles. Um, and I, when I did my first four world records, they, I did an interview with the BBC, and they reached out to me, said about this design, and talked about the fluid dynamics, and I was like, oh, that's amazing, it sounds great. So they slitted one of my paddles, I used it, and I did notice the difference. I think, actually, I think with the catch and you know the, the relief it provides to your body is absolutely amazing. When you've done paddling, when you're paddling for 44 hours, it doesn't make any difference anymore. You're just aching no matter what. But I have noticed, and we have sent it to a few other people, a few other companies have given it a go, and they've noticed some difference in it. Um, in the canoeing world, uh, they have had it, well, the thing is that the British Canoeing Association have just uh, accepted it as part of their equipment now, which is great. Um, so we try and do more work with paddles, trying to get more brands involved, and just try and get it out there if anybody wants to give it a go get hold of a Oscar propulsion. There you go. You heard it here first. Mm. Um, so so that's sort of two sort of real spectacular locations, but you've also done lakes as well. And you did that as a sort of pack, I guess, of the world records. Yeah. So the, the first four world records I did was the four longest lakes in the UK in four days. So I actually came up with this idea when I was in prison. So I used the opportunity in prison to train and train and train. Um, and I remember telling those around me, like, you know, when I'm out, I'm going to go and paddleboard the four longest lakes in the UK. I'm going to set four world records. And they were just telling me, there were the people around me, it's like, no, you're not. You're, you're a number. Stop daydreaming. Once a number, always a number. And I was like, in that moment when I realized, like, I'm not going to be defined by my prison sentence anymore. I am much more than this. I'm going to go in this world and just just change myself, reconnect myself through adventure. So I did these four longest lakes. So I did Loch Orr in Scotland. Then I travelled down to Lake Windermere in England, caught the ferry over to Loch Ness in Northern Ireland, came back, and then I finished in Banner Lake in North Wales, Snowdonia. Wow, that's incredible. And that, that was quite a logistical job as well, I guess. It was. It was. A Loch, I mean, Loch Orr was, uh, again, unbelievable, beautiful location. There was... I was probably the only person on this lock. But when I left Loch Orr to go and travel to Lake Windermere, I hired a um, VW transporter 
and it broke down on the way down there. And I didn't get to Lake Windermere to about one in the morning. Had a few hours sleep, still not knowing if my camper van's going to work, not get on the lake. Luckily, the IRAC came through, saved the day, managed to do Lake Windermere, head off to Liverpool and get the ferry over to um, uh, Northern Ireland. Oh, amazing. And just looking forward, you've got um, lots of stuff planned. So you're telling us before we went on air around the Isle of Wight and surfers against sewage. Just tell us a little bit about what you've got coming up there. Yeah, so in July, my I've come up with another idea. It's called the Great Green Paddle. So the idea, I'm going to do a five-day solo sup around the Isle of Wight. Um, but Everything I'm going to use is recycled or leaves no carbon footprint or is 100% recyclable. So that's my board. So the board that I've got is made out of plastic that was going to go to landfill. So I met a guy who's created this board. I have a paddle that's made out of driftwood. All my clothes is going to be recyclable. My food is all foraged from the Isle of Wight. All the water I have to purify or collect from sources on the island. And all my clothes, my toothbrush is made out of bamboo sleeping equipment it's all you know it's all um hemp fibers and uh, all this um but the idea i mean you could probably do the isle of wight in one day but the idea is i got to survive for these five days on my own to prove that it can be done to sort of show that we can start doing these carbon neutral adventures now i mean there's so much plastic in the seas you know there's so much we're damaging the planet so much that i want to show that there are some companies doing amazing things Again, being given this platform, I want to team up with Surfers Against Sewage to try and raise money and awareness for them as I take to the island uh, and do these five days, which I'm really looking forward to. And then looking a bit further ahead, I know you've got some other stuff as well. You're eyeing up Europe and uh, potentially Asia as well. Just tell us about the beasts. Yeah, so so I came up the island. So the four lakes of four days was the beginning of my untamed beasts. Um, which was to paddleboard the longest lake in every country in the world. So in August, I'm going to go and finish the the little bits. So I'm going to go and do Iceland. And then September, I'm going to go across Europe and I'm going to attempt 33 world records on 33 of the longest lakes in Europe in 66 days. So the idea is we're going to start in Amsterdam, go to Germany, go up to Scandinavia. We come down around um, sort of Poland, down into Albania, that sort of area, and across France, Italy, France, and then finish up in Portugal. Um, really excited about this one. We've got a lot of interest. We making a documentary around it. We've got some big people that are interested in commissioning it. Um, and if that goes well, then I'm now looking at doing Central America in February, and then hopefully Asia next summer. Oh, that's incredible. So, so you've identified all the lakes you're going to do. What have you got going on in in France and Italy? I put me on the spot now, aren't you? So we in Portugal, you got Alquiva, Alcuva, eighty-three. In Spain, the funny enough, the longest lake in Spain is only six kilometers long, uh, which is San Bria. But these are the longest natural lakes that are solely in the country as well. So in France, it's Lac du Bouguet, Bouguet, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Switzerland, where it's Lake New Crotel, Crotel. Oh right, okay. I've got a poor European lake knowledge. You see, this is uh... well. These so these are solely in the country. So some of the lakes do cross over into different countries. So this is the solely natural Swiss lake, and then Lake Garda. Um, 
So if I give you, so basically starting Holland, we got Germany, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Moldova, Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, North Macedonia, Serbia, Kosovo, Albania, Montenegro, Bosnia, Croatia, Hungary, Slovakia, Czech, Austria, Slovenia, Italy, Switzerland, France, Spain, Portugal. Um, we did have obviously Ukraine and Russia in there, but mm. due to political situations, we won't be going there. Mm. Well, that sounds very sensible. Wow, that's incredible. And in terms of Central America, how far along the road are you? Are you just sort of designing that, or just, just designing at the moment? So there's there's what's it nine countries? We've got the nine lakes, um, all great. Uh, it's just. I've got these, so basically, I've got Isla White, I've got Iceland, this done. We've got a meeting coming up at the end of the month with the guys that are hopefully going to commission documentary who are really interested in doing Central America as well. So, mm. if they decide to sign that deal at the end of the month, then I think we'll be over to Central America, then mm. hopefully off to Asia, and then do every other continent as well. I've got so many ideas of paddleboarding, I love it. Like, as you know, it's the fastest growing sport in the world. and what we can do with the exploration touring side, we haven't even hit the peak of it yet. And there's so much to do. There's so much to achieve. And I just want to get out there and I want to go and paddle all these different places, see the world and share my story and just, yeah, take paddleboarding to a whole new level. Incredible. Good stuff. I mean, exciting times. David, thanks ever so much for coming on to the show. Obviously good luck with your, your future record attempts and your fundraising. And it's really important to highlight the issues that you been raising and and you know refreshing that you're so transparent about your own experience so so go well um look and look forward to maybe uh, grabbing a paddle um somewhere on the dorset coast at some point where can people find out more about you see i mean i think the best place if they want to find out any information or or see what i'm doing is on instagram at nomadic paddler that's the thing i seem to keep up to date the most um twitter again at nomadic paddler I have LinkedIn, David Hayes, and I have a website at nomadicpadder.co.uk, which I keep needing to update, especially with what's coming up. But I think my most active thing at the moment is uh, Instagram at nomadicpadder. Fantastic. Well, look forward to keeping up with your adventures and obviously all the links will be there in the show notes. David, thanks so much for appearing on SOP FM. Brilliant. Thank you very much for having me. 